Uh, yesterday was an exciting day at our house. Uh, we received delivery of a new washing machine. Yeah. Now, you don't know how good that is because, because um, we haven't had a washer for two months. <laughs> our old machine, God rest its mechanical parts, uh, lasted a long time, stopped working just before my wife went on a trip to California. So we waited for her to return because she's got say on the, uh, on the purchase of the new machine. And then when, when she got back, we just had a few very hectic weeks and had difficulty finding the right machine at the right time and place for us to, to get. Finally, after uh, a month had gone by, we, uh, we knew which machine we wanted. We were ready to go. We went in to talk to the salesman about it. He was very helpful. He gave us a sale price on it, even though the sale was over on that machine. And, and he threw in free delivery and said he would hook it up for us. And they would even take away our old machine for free. And it was all good. And we were excited and we're, we're paying for it. And he says, he says, we'll have it there. This is the end of March, right? He says, we'll have it there on April 21st. What? What? We need it right now. Nope, can't deliver it till April 21st. So we had to wait it out. Two months Two months, but we decided we could tolerate it. We just wore old clothes in our closet we hadn't worn in a long time. And we, we wore some dirty clothes. Sorry about that around you folks. And, uh, and we just lived with some mountains of laundry. But, but, uh, but we decided we could tolerate that. You know, it was worth it for what we wanted to, uh, to get done. We did have some neighbors who helped us, at least one neighbor who helped us do a few uh, loads of laundry for us. And we made it through. It was all good. Today from Scripture, we're actually going to learn about some, uh, some dirt of a different kind. Some dirt of a different kind that we should never tolerate. And uh, we're going to learn why we shouldn't tolerate it. We're going to learn how to avoid becoming complacent and accepting about it. We'll be in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 is where we'll start today. Book of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. As we continue on in our Don't Back Down series from the New Testament books of 1 and 2 Peter, don't back down is our focus this ministry year, ministry year ending at the end of summer, so only about four months left in it. Jesus called us to be don't back down disciples. We've been learning through the year what that means and, and how to do it. And here in Second Peter chapter 2, the subject has been entirely about what to think about and what to do about false teachers. False teachers, teachers who claim to be Christian but who really are not. They don't truly follow Christ or pass on Christ's teaching. Some of them really don't even acknowledge Christ as real or relevant. They, they say instead, we have better insight with Jesus. He was okay, but we have better insight. We know more. We know deeper things than Jesus taught. Many of, the, of those teachers we know uh, from uh, reading this chapter, chapter 2, as well as we know from our own experience, we're just in it for, uh, for the money or the power, or the ability to manipulate other people. That's why they wanted to be teachers. Others of them were more sincere about their religion, but they were just sincerely wrong. We have lots of teachers like that today. There's some who are just manipulative. Some are, are sincere, but they're still sincerely wrong. We, we have them all around us. You can see them on TV. You can see them here in town. About these teachers, uh, here's what, what Peter writes about as he, as he closes out this section. I'm at verse 17. And uh, Peter says this, about them, these, these teachers are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they enticed by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved." For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Well, that's an interesting uh, way to wrap up the chapter, isn't it? Here we get uh, Peter with a reminder overall here. Don't back down means don't go back. Don't back down means don't go back. Don't go back to a life of immorality, impurity, sin. Because impurity is incompatible with Christianity. Impurity is incompatible with Christianity. Sin does not in any way fit with our worship of God, our walk with God, our witness to God and for God. There's no place for it in our relationship with Him. It's unacceptable to God. 
And some of us might think, well, duh, everybody knows that. But Peter reminds us here that that's not true. Many, in fact, don't know, never knew, or have forgotten it, either intentionally or unintentionally. Peter has in, uh, in mind here first when he's writing about, uh, about the, uh, the, those who don't know, he's, he's uh, thinking about newcomers to Christianity, ones that are affected by these false teachers, the ones he calls in verse 18, those who barely escape from those who live in error. He's referring to new converts from paganism, those who had just come to know Jesus Christ, to put their faith in Christ and, and uh, receive forgiveness of sin and then begin to follow Christ those who had just started to come out from their old pagan, immoral ways of living, those who were not yet knowledgeable and discerning about the ways of Christ and a walk with Christ. He has them in in mind first. But it's clear from both this uh, whole chapter and this whole letter of 2 Peter that he's not referring exclusively just to new converts. He has in mind more experienced participants in the church of Jesus Christ as well. Because some of them too are susceptible to returning to a life of impurity. In fact, some of them have. And the key reason for that, of course, is the presence of the primary subject of of this chapter, the false teachers. Peter describes the false teachers as as those who say they're Christians and that they're teaching the truth, but we know they're not. They say they have knowledge that's advanced, but we know they're they're not. They're not true teachers of the word. Peter's descriptions of them are, are significant. First, he says, they're springs without water. That's his description there at the beginning. They are springs without water. That is, they present themselves as founts of spiritual knowledge and wisdom and that if you follow them, they will, they will uh, bring spiritual refreshment to your soul and give you spiritual life. They look the part, they sound the part of that, Peter says, but really they have nothing of real substance to dispense. They're like a spring that's empty. They have no real spiritual truth, nothing that will truly quench spiritual thirst and give spiritual sustenance and they delude others who trust them for that similarly peter says also there at the beginning they're like mists driven by a storm that is they're like those who are dry spiritually remember these first readers of uh, peter's letter would have been those who lived in a very uh, climate-wise dry atmosphere a dry atmosphere and And Peter says, you know, for those of you who know that, they they look like refreshing rainstorms that are about to come in and refresh, like squalls that often swept down uh, onto the Sea of Galilee or from the Sea of Galilee. But like many of those squalls, they looked good in the cloud, but but then when they came through, it was more wind than water. It was was a lot of of look, but just a little mist, just leaving really a haze. And Peter was saying, these teachers look promising and they raise hope, but when, when all is said and done, they just leave behind disappointment. But still, Peter reminds us, many buy into them. Buy into them for two reasons, he says. Verse 18, because first of all, they come speaking out arrogant words of vanity. Arrogant words of vanity. The NIV puts it differently, just trying to smooth it out uh, from the original text translation a little bit. They mouth empty, boastful words. The original text in the Greek language uh, helps us to understand this a little better because a rough literal translation of the phrase means this. They use excessively oversized words. They do that intentionally. They use excessively oversized words. They use religious and philosophical lingo that's not used in ordinary conversations or perhaps even in some educational settings. But they use them. They speak them on purpose. They speak those words in grand and authoritative ways because it makes them sound deep. It makes them sound brilliant. Quite a contrast, by the way, to Jesus and his apostles. How Jesus always tried to say, let's bring this down to what people can understand. Uh, Jesus talked about, about uh, the gospel in simple terms. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, brings out the same thing. Because when he was in Corinth, there were all sorts of, of teachers around, the great Greek philosophical teachers, at least I thought they were great. But they were confusing. And and Paul said, you know, when we came, we didn't even try to do what they do. We didn't even try to match them in eloquence. We just went with the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. These teachers were all into making themselves look good. They talked this way to feed their own arrogance uh, somewhat, but also because they knew the effect it would have on people. People would listen to them thinking they were were really smart. But in reality, they, they were just using inflated words that really were valueless spiritually. 
They were effective. Their, their high-sounding words were, were drawing in and snaring people who were unwary. Second of all, Peter says about them, one of the reasons why they were effective was, uh, verse 18 again, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. In other words, they, they would say, hey, hey, listen, everyone, you know what people call immorality and impurity? Well, that's not immoral or impure at all, those things. That's so old fashioned. That's that's so unknowing. Those things are OK. They don't matter. And in, in fact, the truly spiritual, they would say, really understand that we're set free from those kinds of constraints, that our spirit is what counts. And hey, what we do with our bodies, not really that big a deal. And these so-called immoralities, well, they're not really immoral. And they're, they're you know, you can you can do them. They're actually spiritual means for you to be fully enlightened and to enjoy all of these things without guilt. They're things you are meant to enjoy without restraint. The words that Peter uses here to uh, uses here indicates that these false teachers especially enticed followers by approving and encouraging total sexual freedom. That was their appeal, and most always that's an, entice, an enticement that will appeal to the masses. And so they used it. But the words uh, fleshly desires here in verse 18 is, is beyond just, uh, just uh, you know, sexual debauchery. Sensuality takes care of that, that word there in verse 18. But fleshly desires indicates they didn't stop with just abandoning restraints about sex. They went much beyond that as well. That, that word fleshly desires applies to a broad range of things. In fact, you find a list of it. In the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. I don't know if you've ever read that list of, uh, of the, de- the desires, the deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5, look at this. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, says there. In other words, you can just look around and see them. You can just look at how people live. You'll know. The deeds of the flesh are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Paul says, I could go on, but you know what I'm talking about. It's the kind of things we we see on so-called reality TV today, right? The glorification of the desires of the flesh. It doesn't matter whether it's sex or anger or, you know, outbursts or whatever. You know, that's come on TV now, and the thought is, well, that's how normal people live. And so now we're starting to buy into the concept that that's normal. Those are the desires of the flesh. They're only normal if you're in sin. In one way or another, the the false teachers said all of these so-called sins aren't that sinful. That was their word. They're not that sinful. They're, They're not unspiritual. They don't negatively affect your spiritual life your relationship with God, your present, your future destiny, your eternal destiny. The truly free understand that you're free from those restraints. You're free to live life in an unhindered way. That is to be spiritual, they said. The spiritually wise know it. Well, no wonder so many people bought into to the false teachers, right? Just as they do now. They look good. They sound good. They seem like they're brilliant. And they tell us we're free to do whatever we want. That's appealing. We can know God, they say. We can have a relationship with God. We can do that. We don't have to be concerned with those pesky, uncomfortable matters of sin. So people buy into it. Peter says that's what they do, but here's the thing. None of it's true. None none of that is true. It's an illusion. Because for one thing, that sort of freedom really doesn't lead to freedom. In fact, it's just the opposite. That sort of life without restraint just means you, you confirm your enslavement. To sin. About the false teachers uh, luring away the unwary. Notice in verse 19, Peter says, They are promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. The fact of the matter was, these uh, false teachers proclaimed freedom, but they themselves were slaves, slaves of sin. They couldn't resist the temptation to sin in their own life. If you read chapter 2 in in 1 Peter and 2 Peter both, you'll see the descriptions. But even just in chapter 2, remember, Peter identified him and said, well, if you've noticed, here's what they're all about. Sexual debauchery, greed, arrogance, lying. They exploit others and they rebel against legitimate authorities. They're slaves to those things. They can't stop doing those things. I had a professor once that I 
highly respected, a Christian, uh, Christian professor who often, because he was so knowledgeable and eloquent, was able to go out even into secular settings, and he was invited out to go and, and uh, tell about different parts of Christianity and debate about it. He was invited once to a, a secular uh, school, and, uh, and part of the discussion was morality, Christian morality. Was it relevant? Did it, was it real? Did it matter? And he presented his side of the story, why we believe it, the value of it. And there was a, a, a gentleman in the, in the front row who became sort of a polite heckler during his whole uh, conversation. When there would be a pause, he would mutter something or say something, and a conversation almost began to break out between these two. And of course, the, the heckler, his position was, oh, that's all just bunk. That Christianity, that morality stuff, valuable, no. Hurts people, no, no. That doesn't, nobody gets hurt by that stuff. And it kind of kept accelerating and accelerating. Finally, uh, as, as, uh, as this professor was talking about it, the guy just began to blurt out and say, say, oh, that's totally false because I do this and I do this and I do this. I do this three times a day. I'm going to do this tonight four times. And he was going through all of his list of sins he was going to, to commit. And all that he does, and he basically said, this is what I do all the time. It never negatively affects me. doesn't have any impact on me at all. And this professor just looked at him and said very quietly, can you stop? Are you able to stop doing those things? Well, he got all befuddled. Well, I don't want to stop. Why would I want to stop? And of course I could stop if I want to. Really, the professor said, could you stop just even for one day then? All these things you say you do? Could you stop for a week? Have you tried it? The guy began to back off because he knew he was cornered. What he had really revealed was his enslavement to those things. His freedom is enslavement. Here's Peter's words. You know, Peter, the so-called uneducated fisherman, probably didn't think this up himself, but he sure understood it. What did he say there? For, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. By what a man is overcome, by this, is, this he is enslaved. And the fact of the matter is, as human beings in our natural state, we're slaves to sin. We're slaves to sin. By the way, that's one of the big reasons why why uh, these, these false teachers wanted to legitimize all this, right? Because they were slaves to sin and they needed some way to legitimize their lifestyle. But the reality is, in our natural state as human beings, we have this incredibly strong propensity to sin because of something called a sin nature. John 8, 34, Jesus' words, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. By commit sin, he means here as a habit, a lifestyle. Is a slave of sin. That's the reality. We possess an attitude and a habit of sin. We think about it. We desire it. We move toward it. We develop those habits in our natural state, and and it's inescapable. As sinners with that sin nature, we're helpless to fully defeat sin. We cannot overcome it on our own. So does that mean there's no hope for us? No, there is hope, because in John 8, 36, Jesus said this, If the Son, that's Him, Jesus, makes you free, you will be free indeed. Say, oh yeah, I heard that at a political rally once. A social movement. Yeah, good, but that's not where it came from. That's not what this is about. Jesus said this in terms of the matters to do with sin. What's inside of you? If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. If He doesn't, you're never going to get rid of it. Through real faith in Jesus, we receive, we become indwelt by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who does away with our sin nature and he gives us a new nature that desires godliness, that finds ungodliness repugnant. And the Spirit begins and continues to do works of transformation in us as long as we're yielding to him. And we know we still wrestle with the effects uh, and the long-programmed habits of our old nature, but we're no longer slaves to sin. As long as we're cooperating with God, we have real life change. Jesus said, John 8, 31, he was saying this to brand new believers. If you continue in my word, that is, if you really take in the word of God in your life, if you let the Holy Spirit apply it as he's working in your life, you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. You will follow God's will. You will understand God's will and God will give you the ability to do something with that, to actually follow that will. Real freedom doesn't come from abandoning all restraints and giving in to sin. It comes from overcoming sin through the power of Christ and by enjoying then fulfillment, fulfillment by living in the will of God. That's real freedom. 
We're truly free when we do what we desire to do and we're actually able to to step out and do it. When we have that heart that says, I want to to do this. I want to be, be, be not sinful. And then we're actually able to do it. That's freedom. Peter also brings out a second reason here why uh, why this sort of freedom that they advocated didn't really bring to didn't really bring them to freedom. And that that second reason was that you're not free if you're living under judgment and eternal condemnation by God. Well, you may have a little bit of freedom now, but that's not really freedom when you're living with that sentence over your head. God has clearly revealed himself to be a moral being. He's revealed to us his moral guidelines for our lives. He's told us of the condemnation that results from breaking his moral laws. That's what Peter's referring to in verse 17 when he writes to the false teachers and he said that they are those for whom the black darkness has been reserved. The black darkness there is a reference to hell and Peter's clear that hell uh, is making clear that, that hell is a destination of those false teachers and of anyone else who's guilty of breaking God's moral laws and is unforgiven through Jesus Christ. Living un, under such condemnation, are you really free? No, of course you're not. Peter goes on now, beginning in verse 20. Notice this. Let's go back and see that again where he says, for if, he's talking about the false teachers, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed down them. The holy commandment being the commandment to live a godly life. This is important here, these verses, because one of the things it tells us is that many of those who had become false teachers in Peter's day had previously come to know of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They had come to the knowledge of that. They They had heard the good news of Jesus. They knew about him. They had, it seems, even perhaps professed faith in Jesus. And all indications are they had become participants in the church of Jesus Christ. But Peter's description here, matched with what else we we know from Scripture, indicates that they were those who never truly put their faith in Christ, never actually submitted to his lordship. They may well have prayed some sort of sinner's prayer sometime. Oh, Lord, forgive me for my sins and make me a Christian. But they didn't really have their heart in it. They weren't sincere. They didn't accept, really, accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, both of those things. Understand, true faith in Jesus, true response to Jesus always means that we receive him and follow him as both Lord and Savior. You see that in verse 20, those words, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Where are you used to hearing that often today? Interviews after sports events, right? The guy who scores the touchdown, the quarterback who wins the game. I just want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Very common phrase that that we hear often today, right? And sometimes we wonder about the guys who say that because then we hear about them getting arrested the next day for something. But, but you understand there are some guys who do say it. And, of course, Tim Tebow is, was the big one this last year that got all the attention for that, right? He said that very frequently. And he was criticized for it, you know, whether he should use that platform or not. I guess that's debatable. People can decide that on their own. But you've got to understand, with someone like Tim Tebow, when he said that, he knew what he was saying. He meant what he was saying. When he said, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he meant both of those things. Not just he's my Savior, but he's the one I follow. That's the reason I live the way I live. Because he's not just my Savior, he's my Lord. He's my Lord. Scripture is very clear. True faith in Jesus means we come to him. We're not earning our way to salvation. We're coming to him and and asking him for forgiveness as Savior. And we're putting our lives in his hands, which means and I'm making you the leader of my life now, Lord Jesus. But you know, not just calling Jesus Lord it means you're actually submitting to him as Lord. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus made this very clear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, see, the one who's following me, he is the one who will enter. Not just by our our religious words do we make a statement, but by how we actually live. These false teachers, they had had heard the truth. They understood it. They they evidently had been participating in the church in some way, so they had started down the right path, and they were saying the right words initially. 
But, but then they didn't actually become believers and followers. They stopped somewhere on the path. They came up short and turned around. And that became evident as they went back to their old pagan way of life. And then they began to advocate for that pagan way of life as being a reasonable way to, to serve God and live before God. And as a result, Peter here says, you notice this? They, they ended up in a worse state spiritually than they were previously. He said because they did that, they ended up in a worse state spiritually than they were previously before they even came to hear about Jesus. Because in the process of, of hearing and then turning back, their souls became more hardened against God. Once they heard and knew and rejected, then within them there was an immediate sense of hardening that said, I'm not going that direction. And they stood firm in that. The longer they stood firm in it, the harder they they became in their resistance to it. And at the same time then, they became more culpable for their sins and under greater condemnation for their disobedience and their rejection of Christ and their alluring of other people into into that same belief and, and lifestyle because they knew they had heard, but they rejected it. There are degrees of condemnation, the Bible teaches us. Degrees of punishment for sin, both now and in hell. And those who know the way of righteousness, Peter says in verse 21, those who know it and then having known it, turn away from it, they will face a greater condemnation than those who have have disobeyed in ignorance. And so to know and to walk away, that's a really serious sin. And really that's what Peter's getting at here at the end of the chapter. This is a warning to everyone. False teachers, potential false teachers, potential followers of false teachers, already followers of false teachers, This is a serious warning, a a serious warning. The warning is don't go back. Don't go back into into slavery and condemnation by going back into immorality or any other forms of impurity. Don't go back because that's a serious sin. And that's to put yourself in a place, in a place you don't want to be. There are devastating consequences to your life right now and later. You notice Peter actually adds on here. He says there, there are consequences and it, and it really is shown up in your life. It's shown up in an interesting way. You notice the, the terminology that Peter uses here in, uh, in verse 22. He, he, says, he says, to go back that way, it just shows that, that you're disgusting <laughs> and that, and that you're, you're repulsive. You're like a dog, Peter says. He doesn't mean here a nice, friendly, domesticated dog. In those days, they were, the dogs they, they had around were filthy you know, fierce, scavenging dogs, wild dogs. You're just like a dog and you're like a sow. You're like a pig. Catch that in verse 22, where he says, he says this, this is what it's like when someone goes backwards. A dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Not very pleasant pictures, are they? Think about, but they're appropriate pictures for Peter to speak of as he's giving the warning. A dog returns to his own vomit. If you ever had a pet dog, you've seen it, right? You've seen your dog throw up, and it's not pretty when they throw up, and it's even uglier when they go back to it. Now, put that in terms of the wild, scavenging, ugly, fierce dog instead of the cute little dog in your house, and it gets even uglier looking, doesn't it? And it's really disgusting even when the nice domesticated dog goes back just to sniff out the the thing he threw up, right? But it's even worse when they start eating it. Yeah, see, it's it's just a repulsive thing, isn't it? It's a repulsive thought. But Peter says, here's what I want you to get. I want you to get this warning. that, That when you've been going toward Christ and you know and you go the other way, that's what you're being like. You're being that disgusting and that repulsive that repulsive, especially if you've actually come to Christ and you've purged out of your life the the sin, the evil, the bad, the stuff that stinks and pollutes and makes you sick and makes other people sick and hurts people. If 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 you've purged all that out and then you go back to it, it's like a dog eating its vomit. It reveals, it reveals your, reveals your true character, does it not? Peter is saying. It displays an ugliness of the inner person. There's something amiss there. And it shows a trend toward destruction, Peter is saying. Similarly, similarly, he says, a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So, you know, Peter was of Jewish background, all the apostles, Jesus. A lot of the people he was writing to, the, you know, the first time he sent out this letter, 
They were from a Jewish background, and they held pigs in contempt. It was considered, a pig was considered an especially vile animal, just like a wild dog. If you go back in the Gospels, you'll read Jesus actually puts a wild dog and a pig in the same sentence to talk about someone who's really disgusted as an example. But, but the, the concept here is this from these old proverbs. And the, the old proverb is this. Suppose a, a sow came out of a, out of a slimy pig pen. And you understand these are wild pigs too, right? Because since they're vile, nobody keeps pet pigs or they're not farming pigs, right? These are wild pigs, you know, the kind of ones that would run over you if they could or bite you if you get in their way. And, and, but Peter says, suppose one of them leaves the herd and wanders out to some fresh, clean water and takes a beautiful bath. And just get so totally cleaned up that you just look and you're just excited. How cool is that? How positive is that? All that filth washed off. But then, but then before it even gets back to the herd, it turns around again and it goes and it, and it just gets as slimy and dirty and mucky as it could possibly be. It's just as filthy as ever. Well, that would not be very impressive, would it? And it would really show that there hadn't been any real change in that pig at all. Just taking a little break, a little vacation, trying life on the other side for a little bit. But there was no real change. And Peter says, that's like, that's what it's like when one has come out of the filth of a sin-filled life and then goes back to it again. And Peter's saying the first thing it does is it raises questions. It raises questions that most likely there are answers for right in front of you. It raises the questions of whether you ever really came to God or not in the first place. Or if you did, were you ever really serious about it? Were you ever grateful for God's grace in your life? Did you ever really truly turn your heart to Jesus as leader? Was your heart ever truly changed by it? It raises the question, doesn't this show that your spirituality was at best at a surface level and never went deep? Doesn't it show that? If nothing else, doesn't it show that, that you're now, at a minimum, it's going to show you're on a downward slide spiritually that is not going to end well. So who's going to be happy with that picture of their life? But that's what it's like. Now, here, of course, the question always rises. Are you saying then that, that if a person backslides into sin, that's a sure sign that they were never saved in the first place? Interesting question, huh? You know, the answer to that is we can't say that. We can't say we know for certain that a person who backslide into sin was, was never saved. We can't make that judgment. God never gives us that right to make that judgment in Scripture. You know, it, it only encourages us, uh, us to consider one person when we want to think about that, and that's ourselves. <laughs> you know, we're, we're called to look inside ourselves if we're, if we're having doubts. Other than that, we can't make that distinction. We don't have the insight of God to do it. But, it, but here, as we answer that question... Does that mean that someone who has, who has become a backslider into sin never had salvation in the first place? Here's the proper answer. It might. It may be true, which is why you need to start looking inside yourself. It's entirely possible. It's entirely possible. But it raises another question that we have to take seriously, too. And that is, that is, even if I'm truly saved, what does this say about where I'm headed right now? What's coming up for me? Here's what the Bible says is coming up for you. If you're going back to that direction. But first of all, God, God very often, after, after attempts to help you understand, will let you go the way you're determined to go. And when you go that way you're determined to go, you will suffer some loss. You will suffer some pain because sin always leads to pain. It always leads to loss. And, and so, for example, if, if you're married and you decide, well, I'm just going to cheat on my wife. In fact, I think I'll cheat a few times. Different people. You know what? There's, God, God's not going to come in there and go, okay, I'll just rescue you when you call, when you call out. No, you, you have a good chance of losing your wife and losing your family and your kids. And there's a real good chance in the process that, you know what? Your kids might, some of them might decide that's the example to follow rather than the example of the faithful father and husband. And so you just might influence your kids that way. And so you just may find your kids going off in rebellion too. Of course, we can keep the string going, but you understand what I'm saying here. There's a point where God says, you know what? I'm not going to get in there and just force my way to stop you if you're determined to go that way. And when it happens, 
When it happens that way, you will suffer for it. Scripture also tells us this. God at times exerts spiritual discipline in our lives. He steps in. He stops us short. He does that for two reasons. One is he's trying to save us from ourselves. And so he'll bring something hard into our life to make us wake up. Sometimes God has a bigger picture than that. He's saying, I'm really trying to save your family from you. And I'm not going to let your kids suffer because of what you're doing. Sometimes God will step in and say, the reason I'm doing this is that the church of Jesus Christ needs to stay on track. And you're causing it to be off track. You're leading people astray. You may not proclaim yourself to be a false teacher, but the way you're living, you're leading people astray. Sometimes God says, I'm doing that right now. Now, other times, for reasons we don't understand, God will let a person go a long time in their sin, even die in their sin. The promise is always this, from God, you'll be meeting me face to face someday. Count on it. Count on it. And so if we catch ourselves saying, well, you know, does this mean I'm a little backslidden? Does this mean I'm... I've got a problem. The answer is always yes in one way or another. You've got a problem. How do we avoid that? How do we avoid that? Well, one of the ways we do it is by making sure we reject the big lies. The big lies that, that, that are out there. And they're the big lies that are common in some form. They will always be common with false teachers. We don't have time to go and, and go through a lengthy list of them and, and define them all, but, but just to, to name a few. So one of the big lies, of course, is this. Morality doesn't matter. The teaching that morality doesn't matter. No, it always does because God's a moral being who has given us his moral laws and he enforces those laws. Lie number two. I'm okay with God if I accept Jesus as my Savior, but hey, it's not a big deal if I'm not really following him as Lord. No, that's never true also. We accept him as both. If you've come at Jesus in those terms of, well, I kind of like the idea of him being Lord. I just don't want to submit to him, but I'm sure glad I've taken him wholeheartedly as Savior. That doesn't work with God. You're not on good terms with God in that situation. Big lie number three, God's grace, his grace. Remember his love for sinners, even when we don't deserve to be loved. Well, God's grace means Hey, I can just keep on sinning as long as I keep on going back and asking for forgiveness of sin. I do whatever I want. On Saturday night, I go to church on Sunday morning and confess my sins. Nope, that doesn't work either. Now, now be, be sure to understand, if we stumble as Christians in our walk with God and we sin, we can go back to God, confess our sin, and, and restore our fellowship there with God. He's willing to forgive. But if we're living life with an attitude of, hey, I can sin and all i got to do is is uh, is then pray the prayer of forgiveness. God says, do you think I'm that stupid that I don't know what you're doing? Do you think that I I am that unintelligent that I would think that's, oh yeah, you're really on track with me? No, it doesn't work like that. Scripture says, you know what? When you come for forgiveness, there's more than just confession. There, There needs to be what the Bible calls an attitude of repentance. And repentance means I'm truly sorry, and I'm sorry, enough, it's, it's, I'm, I'm sorry enough that I'm actually turning and going the right way. I'm not just, just acknowledging that I sinned, and so I'm asking for forgiveness. I'm actually turning back from that sin. Here's another big lie. The freedom that I have from Christ that keeps me from having to earn my salvation by keeping God's law means I'm free to not even have to think about God's laws. Because if I don't have to earn my way to God by keeping God's laws, then what difference does God's law make anymore? I have freedom in that area. Hmm, wrong thinking again. Because when we receive salvation, when we're to receive Jesus as both Savior and Lord, the Scripture says we become at that point bond slaves of Jesus Christ. We have voluntarily entered into that relationship. We have become a slave of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has a set of standards. You don't want to call them God's laws. You can call them Jesus' set of standards, his commandments, whatever. That's what we're bound to. They all amount, in the end, to the same thing, except, of course, not going back into the Old Testament laws for Israel. The moral laws remain the same. How about this lie? True freedom is, is, is me doing whatever I want. Well, we already dealt with that one, didn't we? But, but that's a lie that, that we hear. True freedom is, is what? When Christ sets me free from the enslavement. And then how about maybe just one more? There are no real, real serious consequences for a person who's become a Christian. We've already touched on that one, right? 
But that's the word out there, sometimes taught by a teacher, sometimes told you by a friend. Sometimes we, uh, we hear, where do we hear these things from sometimes? Oh, it's us talking to ourselves. We heard that said somewhere. We hope it's true. We wish it's true. And so when we're off track, we start saying those lies to ourselves. It makes us feel better. It makes us feel confident. None of those truths are, are accurate. And so the first thing to do is we decide right up front, I'm, I'm not going to be a person who, who takes in the big lies. I'm going to just accept right now that no matter who's out there that's going to, going to be teaching this or how persuasive they are about it, that I already know, I already know from the Bible what the real truth is. So I'm going to decide against it. Along with that then, a second way we make sure we avoid this is that we stay on guard in our lives. We stay on guard knowing that, that none of us are ever immune to stumbling spiritually. None of us are ever immune to it because we're capable of succumbing to rationalizations in our life. Rationalizations. When we, when we say, oh, but you don't understand the pressure I'm under. You don't understand how, how this is going to hurt my family if I don't go do this. You don't understand what a lousy husband I have. What a lousy wife I have. And we rationalize until the point where we give in and we start, we start believing the lie. Hey, it's okay anyway because I've got this good reason. No, it's not a good reason. And so we have to be on guard. We have to be on guard also because there will be, whether they're false teachers or just followers of false teachers, there will be plenty of people enticing us to sin, enticing us to give in to temptations. And there will be strong trials and strong temptations where we'll, we'll think, oh, I, I just really want to. And, and we're susceptible to, to succumbing at that point. And those little lies start coming in. Oh, it won't matter. This doesn't make a difference. You're already saved. So how do we stay on guard? Well, we make sure we know God's word. But, but it's not just that we know God's word. It's good to know it. But one of the reasons why we talk so often about being in God's word regularly is because when you're in God's word, he keeps refreshing you in it. And it's not even so much that he's trying to go over the knowledge with you all again. It's that he's, he's applying it to you. So you're reading and you're going, oh, my goodness, that's just exactly where I am today. That's just exa- I, that, that word is just for me. That's why we, we're in the word regularly. That's staying on guard. Stay fresh in it. We stay in fellowship with other believers. When we have other, other believers around us, they encourage us in our walk with God. That's why we come in fellowship even in a church service, because we hear and learn things together. We flee from false teachers when, uh, when, when we encounter them. We don't give them a place. We don't say, you know, I know this person's off track, but I really like this one aspect of something they're teaching. Well, it's all going to go back to their core beliefs. So instead of buying in because, hey, all my friends are, and this is really cool, no, we, we stay away from them. And of course, we, we run away from the powerful temptations that come along to us. Powerful temptations. When my wife and I go out running, sometimes separately, often together, we're not training for anything. We just like to get outside and stay in shape a little bit. And so we'll run, and, and often we run in areas around our home. And, and uh, in the wintertime, though, we got a problem because a lot of those areas we run in become wetlands in the winter. In the summer, they're great, but, it, but they're, they're soggy. And so we have to find ways around them to get up to the high ground. And one of the routes we take takes us on a, on a narrow two-lane road with no shoulders, and it, there's an S-curve in a certain place you know, where it's blind. You can't see around it no matter which way you're going. And, uh, and we have to take that road. We take that road to, to get up to a spot where we cross back into the hills where we're up on higher ground. But you know, when we're jogging along before then, we're kind of jogging casually, easy, talking. When we get to that place where we've got to go around that curve, we always stop. We start looking and we start listening because we can't see around the curve, right? But we're listening. Is there a car coming? How far back is it? And it's like, okay, ready, go. And we start running, and when we get around the curve, we know that about two telephone poles ahead is the path where we get off. And we run harder on that section than we do any other time we're running. And the reason is we know that there's danger potentially behind us, right? And and so because of that, we make a greater effort to, to get past that. 
And that's exactly the attitude we need to have, is that we're not going to dabble with any of this. We're going to run from this. We're going to run to places of safety and places of truth. Just ask yourself whether you're doing that. Another way that we stay on guard is by responding to warnings, because we will have brothers and sisters in Jesus, if we're in fellowship with church, who, who will be caring. And they'll come and they'll talk to us. And the thing to do is listen to them. Listen to them to see if they're right about what they're saying, that you're, you've gotten off track, you're going the wrong way. Otherwise, well, you're really headed down the wrong path. And in fact, your resistance is just increasing your hardening to God. Have you ever noticed someone that the, that the longer they're in the resistance, the harder they become toward God? And you know, when someone confronts us on a sin and, what, and we resist, what happens? Well, we just, we just decide even further. We're going to resist and stay in it even more. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. And that just makes us harder toward God and we just get settled in that habit. That's why we want to listen to our friends. Make sure that, that they're, they're accurate. If they're not accurate, then we can move on. One more thing we should do to avoid all these, these uh, problems, and that's help one another. Help one another, just like I was, just, I was talking about there. But, but for us, what we need to think about is, remember, Peter was talking about new converts and maybe some people who became Christians but never grew up much in their faith. And, and what he was really saying here is, you know what? Those of us who, who are Christians in the know, we need to be teaching those new converts. We need to be taking them under our wing. We need to be helping them grow. We need to be discipling them. We need to be getting them in Bible study, studies. That's how we keep them on track. And we have to, to see that as a primary ministry of our life. That if God puts someone in front of us in that way, we take it. And we lovingly confront believers who are going astray. We actually do that ourselves. We just don't let other people do it to us, but we do it to ourselves. And we hate doing that, don't we? Because we don't want to butt into anybody else's business. And it's uncomfortable talking to someone about the fact that they're sinning. And we don't know what their reaction is going to be. And we don't like doing it. But Jesus said, you know what? As Christians, that's your responsibility. Gospel of Matthew, he said, if your brother sins, if your brother sins, go and talk to him in private. And, and if he doesn't turn, then, then take some other responsible Christians, just a few of you, and go and talk to him in private. And if that still doesn't work, then, then somehow get, get the larger church involved. But always, it says in the book of Galatians, you're doing this with gentleness. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. But by all means, get out there and do some restoring because it's necessary. Did you catch the story in the newspaper? I just read it a couple of days ago about these three guys from, in Panama. And they took their fishing boat and they went out fishing out into the, into the, the deep part of the ocean, caught some fish. We're heading back in. Their engine totally died. The motor died on their boat. They started drifting. They drifted for a couple of days. And they don't have water. And they've got extreme heat. And they're, they're getting sick. And a cruise ship starts coming by. Big cruise liner ship comes by. And it's perfect because, because on this cruise ship, they're actually bird watching. You've got a bunch of bird watchers on deck. And they've got these big scopes and binoculars and everything. And they're all looking around. And some of them spot these three guys in the, in the boat out there stranded on the sea. And, and one of the guys in the boat takes off his red shirt and he's, he's waving it. He's, he's trying everything he can to get their attention. And they're thinking, they're so close. There's so many people looking. We're going to get saved. And the boat just keeps on going. And it didn't turn back. Passengers evidently reported it to some crew members. Crew members never took the, the, the news up to the bridge. And so the boat never stopped. Of course, a captain would of any ship, you know, knows the dangers, would have turned around if he knew, but he never knew. So you know what? They, they, found, they found the boat two weeks later. Only one of the three men were still alive. And the, and the concept we want to get from that is that like, you see your brother or your sister going into sin and you don't do anything about it? It's just like that cruise ship driving by. And you're just going on your merry way and you're letting them go down to destruction. Help one another. What if I've already stumbled? How do I get back? It's hard, isn't it? When it's become something that you've settled into, it's hard. You can do it because God is willing to take you back. Maybe some of you are here today, you realize, i got to come back. So we got this new washer, right? And so it's one of these new... Uh, you know, the door's in the front instead of on the top. I don't know what it's got. It's a front loader. That's what it is. The front load machine. You know, and so it's, it's got its features. There's some things that make it good, and there's other things you have to be careful of. And, uh, and one of the things, you know, my wife was telling me about this is, 
you know, you got to be careful not because it's a front load. It maybe doesn't dry out. So you have to make sure it dries out. And, and you have to run a rinse cycle about once a, a month. It's like a clean cycle, I guess it's actually called. It's, the whole purpose is it just cleans it up and makes sure this thing still works really well for you. That's just a great picture of like, that's just like us, right? You've got to run the clean cycle every once in a while. And for some of, for some of us, then today, that, that's just because, you know what? We're just drifting a little. And, and we come to places like this and we go, yep, it's clean, it's clean cycle time. I've got to get right. For others of us, it's maybe a bigger issue that we're deep into this. We're deep into this. And it's going, to, it's going to take a significant clean cycle. But the thing is, do it. Do it. Because you don't want to hurt you. And you don't want to hurt your family. You don't want to be one that leads others astray. You want to be on that right track. Lord Jesus, we take time to pause right now to thank you that you're a God who reaches out to us who is kind and good to us, who helps us, who has sent his son to save us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for, for uh, leading us to repentance, to understanding, to life, to knowing what it means to live according to your law. To know what it means to be a bond slave of Jesus and to enjoy it. Thank you, Lord, for this. But we take time right now, Lord, also to pause and to just think about where we are in this today. Whether we're on guard whether we're, uh, we're susceptible to the big lies, whether we've already bought into a few of them, at least in a, in a small way. Lord, whether we're really helping one another, listening to each other. We want to be serious about this because, Lord, your word has told us how serious this is. So we don't take it lightly. Help us to understand this, Lord, not just in this moment, but as we go throughout this week. And Lord, we take a moment now just to pause in the silence, our own silence, Lord, of our connection with you to say to you, Lord, what, what we need to do specifically today. Lord, hear us as we confess. Hear us as we, as Father, we ask for help. For some of us, turning back is so hard. There's so many issues that, that we just have to rely totally on you to, to move forward. So, Lord, we'll be calling that out to you as well. And, Lord, for some of us here, we're going to use this moment to pray, to pray specifically for a person we know who is going the wrong direction. And we want to pray that they would be turned back and that we would be able to do whatever it is you want us to do, hard as it is in that situation. Lord, we take that time right now. We pray to you.